Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Josh Marshall podcast. We are back after uh, two weeks, a one week break, uh, two weeks since we talked to you last. And quite a lot has happened in that period of time, to say the least. Uh, And for uh, for Democrats, it's sort of the first it's the it's I would say it's the first run of a lot of good news in maybe a year. Not sure that's an. I'm not sure that is an overstatement. Uh, I think it was. I believe the the withdrawal from Afghanistan was July August 2021. So we're about a year out from that, and it's not too much to say that like pretty much everything has been has been bad from a from a democratic, uh, you know sort of party affiliation perspective. Uh, I don't have to go through, you know, go over with you all of those things. As as you know, we've had this uh, Inflation Reduction Act. It hasn't actually passed yet. It's passed the Senate. And that's always been the hurdle for all the different permutations of this bill. This is basically uh, a kind of, you know, I'm not sure you'd call it a malware, but sort of BBB light. Right. This is this is this is that. And uh, it's been packaged as the Inflation Reduction Act. And like, OK, you know, it's going to reduce some people's uh, uh, health care expenses. And, and it probably will over time through, you know, investments and in, uh, energy investments and stuff like that. But basically, it is a climate and uh, health care bill. And uh, it's, you know, certainly much smaller than the three point five trillion dollar model that that Democrats were uh, talking about in mid uh, 2021. It's substantially smaller than the $1.5 trillion, you know, kind of what Manchin would agree to in at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. But it is something and it's more than something. It's a pretty big deal. And uh, for people like myself, uh, you know, Basically, what it is, it's the climate stuff without the social democracy stuff, more or less. That's that's kind of what made the cut. Now, it's complex. You know, like any piece of legislation, it is complex, but it's a big deal. And it's a big deal if climate is your issue. So uh, that happened. Uh, the only, as I said, I think everybody's treating it, I think rightly, as, as having already passed before we went on the air. Kate Riga, my co-host, who is who is back with us. Uh, you want to say a little little monologue? Hello, 
even Hello, though everyone you yeah, probably so can't back. see me if you're not watching the video but i'm really tan right now so yeah she's, she's definitely she's definitely tan fresh off the jersey shore yeah 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 well you can tell us how you how you got on with snooki when you're when you're when you're there uh in any case so uh you know big climate legislation and the, the only question in the house was whether this sprinkling of uh you know quote unquote moderate democrats but not only you know moderate but basically no, Democrats in the, in the Northeast and a lot of Democrats from uh, high tax states have really wanted to uh, undo what the Trump tax cut did with the SALT deductions. That's that's the deductions you, you were able to take on state and local taxes. Um, and that has been a particularly big deal uh, for this Josh Gottheimer guy in, in northern New Jersey. And he's been sort of like a, 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 a problem child for the Democrats over the last year and a half. He was, you know, always trying to kind of uh, make, you know, kind of become the, the, the House Joe Manchin, uh, oh, you know, in, in, in the House. But again, the, the salt tax thing is, is a, is a, is a pretty big deal for a lot of Democrats in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in any case, uh, I guess it was uh, maybe it's over the weekend or last week. Th- those those folks basically said, "We're good. We're not gonna we're not gonna reopen this. We're not gonna get this. Is we need to pass this, and we're just gonna kind of swallow hard and do it." So that is happening. That is a really big deal. Uh, we have we had this abortion referendum in Kansas. And uh, Kate and I spoke with you about this a few times over the last you know, month or so, that this was the first time that voters were going to get an official venue to respond to Dobbs. Technically, it didn't have anything to do with Dobbs, but you, know, you get the idea. And I think it's probably fair to say it was considered a, it was originally considered it would pass easily because Kansas, it's a red state. Um, once Dobbs happened, uh, that changed the calculus. Republicans had thought, well, we'll kind of jam this in in a you know a, 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 an August primary election that no one's going to show up for. I think it's probably fair to say it was considered a toss up with an advantage to yes. Kind of, it was very hard. You know, people had a very hard time. There wasn't actually a lot of polling of it, but people had a pretty hard time uh, making sense of what would happen. As it happened, it went down to a crushing defeat, like 60-40. I don't think anybody expected that kind of margin. So it was absolutely crushed. And that was, uh, you know, seen as, it was obviously seen as a big deal in the context of the politics of abortion rights in this country on its own merits. And just to get very mundane and practical, it's a big deal in the Midwest if you want access to an abortion, because Kansas is surrounded by a lot of states where abortion has either been banned or is in the process of being banned. And for this foreseeable future, there's going to be a pretty f- free and clear uh, right to uh, receive, you know, to to get an abortion in Kansas. So if you're in Missouri, if you're in Nebraska, if you're, you know, all the states around there, it's a it's a it's a big deal. And and you know, sometimes we're you know we're so understandably we're so. Um, we're so focused on the big national questions and the implications of this for other political fights over abortion that it, it's obviously a really big deal in Kansas, but it's not just Kansas. It's also in the, in the um, adjoining 
states. And then we have this thing that kind of dropped out of nowhere Monday afternoon that the FBI conducted a raid, a search down in Mar-a-Lago. Huh, that is a really big deal. There's no, there's no, no second guessing how big a deal that is. Nothing like that has ever happened in our history. And a little side note on this, I've heard, we had heard from a number of you saying, hey, you're, you're, you're adopting the Republicans' message and calling this a raid. It's not a raid. It's a you know, judicially uh, ordered lawful search. And it absolutely is. But we're calling it a raid because we've been doing this forever. And we always call these raids. When the cops show up, when the FBI shows up at your door with a warrant and says, open your door, we are coming in to search your premises, that's a raid. Whether they break your door down or just tell you to get out of the way, it's a raid. And yes, calling it one or the other, maybe, maybe people can use that to say, you know, kind of make it sound a little more deep statey to call it a raid, but that's what we always call it. So we're not going to call it something else just because it's Trump and he's out there saying that he's, you know, like Salvador Allende. Right, about to get about to get taken out by the by the by the coup plotters or something like that, and we have uh, it's really still a mystery, a surprisingly large mystery. Why did this raid happen? In a narrow sense, we seem to know with some confidence that it is downstream of this investigation negotiation about about 15 boxes of presidential records, much of which the National Archives said was classified documents that Trump took with him down to Mar-a-Lago. And uh, I think upwards of a year ago, you know, National Archives said, hey, those are ours. You got to give them back. He sent them back. Ongoing sort of, you know, kind of investigation of what happened, but whatever. These things, you know, what's classified, what's not, what's this can seem, and a lot of that did seem like, you know, kind of bureaucratic. You know, the president is allowed to take some stuff with him, and he's definitely not allowed to take other stuff with him. And there's always a little, you know, kind of gray area. You know, I got this letter from, uh, you know, president of the Republic of Korea saying, hey, Don, great to see you. You know, something like that, like, oh, that that's just a kind of between friends, whatever. But it doesn't seem like it seems very unlikely that there would be an FBI raid, which, again, is a big, big thing, totally unprecedented in our history over a dispute about what's classified and what's not. And, you know, did you have a right to take this and what's that? That, that seems really unlikely. You have to remember that there were three people who had to sign off on this. One is Merrick Garland, which who we know is very cautious about this stuff. Very, very cautious. Probably cautious to a fault. Then you have Chris Ray, the head of the FBI, who Trump appointed and who is a Republican. You know, James Comey was a Republican. I mean, in fact, someone mentioned to me earlier today, there's never been anything but a Republican appointee to run the FBI. There was a kind of, I think, uh, an interim once who was maybe like an independent. Republicans report, uh, uh, nominate, you know, put uh, Republicans in charge of the FBI, and so do Democrats. So 
That's the second one. And then you have a, a federal magistrate who's, who's, not, who's not actually a, a uh, they're basically people who work for the Senate approved, Senate confirmed judges. But in any case, a federal judge who had to say, okay, yeah, you, you, this, is, this is legit. You, you, you have the probable cause you need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't really, we still do not know what this is about. And it is, I think the, the current chatter about this centers around this set of questions and expectations, which is, if this is just part of a back and forth about what records Trump has to give back, this does not this doesn't really compute. It's not it may be lawful, you know, you do this is a law, you have to give that stuff back, but that's not the kind of thing where they're going to want to take that first step, that big step. So it must be something more serious than that that would prompt them to do this, or at least that's the expectation. So all of those things, those are things that we are uh, talking about actually, you know, it seems it seems so minor in comparison to all the other things. But just this morning, we got news that you know, uh, ex President Trump had to go up to New York to sit for a deposition with Tish James, the Attorney General of New York State, and he pled the fifth. You have every right to plead the fifth. That is your right, but you're still pleading the fifth. At a minimum, it's bad optics, right? And uh, you know, I think a month ago we would have been like. Oh my God! Oh my God! You know, Trump pleads the fifth. Now it's kind of like, eh, you know, add it to the bonfire, right? I mean, all the different things going on at the moment. So those are those are the uh, all the news we've got to digest, uh, Kate and I, uh, this morning. But before we do, let's not forget that the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It's hot. Like too hot to put on real clothes and shoes to go out for iced coffee. But that doesn't mean you have to suffer without something delicious and cold to sip on. Get a Grady's cold brew bean bag kit delivered to your door and enjoy smooth and silky iced coffee without ever having to leave your house. Each kit makes 36 glasses of iced coffee, which means you'll be ready to weather even the worst heat waves. And man, we have, I mean, it's been ungodly for Horrible. like a absolutely horrible. And with a price tag of just a buck a cup, you'll have the money left over to splurge on a kiddie pool. Ready to feel the chill with every sip? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. As you said, it is horrible, but but uh, I, I'm not going to say where you were, but you've been um, relaxing, living the life of Riley in, in each sun for the last week, right? Yep, my uh, I'm from Philadelphia, so it is the proud Philadelphian tradition to make the pilgrimage to the Jersey Shore every summer, and my family's been doing it for like 20 years or so. So did that. It was lovely. Didn't open Twitter for the entire week, which was also a really interesting ex- experiment because it was like, so this is what it's like to not be interested in politics, you know, just whatever, just seeing what breaks through around me, and it wasn't a great control group because basically everyone else in my life who was there is into politics. But, um, you know, it was funny because the real only news that broke through to me in a big way was the Kansas abortion stuff. Um, just because everyone was so. That was stunning. That was stunning. Just the margin was, and, and and am I basically conveying that right? That the kind of to the extent there was conventional wisdom, kind of toss up, who knows, but probably, probably yes wins. But if it only barely wins, that's a sign of, you know, how, how the 
tide has turned with abortion yeah, politics. Yeah, I mean, one hundred percent. I was doing reporting on this like a few weeks before the vote, and I mean, even when I was talking to the leader of the coalition working against the amendment. Everything she said was tempered. You know, it was all even and this is a campaign, right, which are like supposed to kind of be the most optimistic about their own chances. And she was candid with me about stuff like, you know, if this was on the general, I would I would feel really good about it. But since it's in this primary, which Republicans did on purpose and, you know, and it's convoluted wording and there were all these other kind of hijinks, like misleading texts and recently passed laws that make it harder to recruit new voters and this whole kind of hodgepodge making it just really stacking the deck in favor of stripping the abortion protections out in a state that is already quite conservative. So yeah, I mean, good money was on this amendment passing and you don't even have for any of these reasons, you know, it doesn't even have to be for all of them. And like you say, not only did the amendment go down, it got crushed and turnout was double the primary turnout in 2018. So it's just fascinating. And just, and just for context, mm-hmm. there was really nothing else going on on that election day that would that would give any explanation for why you had such high turnout. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I mean, and also we discussed this before, but part of why this kind of primary scheduling was intended to thwart uh, opponents to the amendment is that they're partisan primaries usually. So people who are unaffiliated voters don't vote in them and that there are more unaffiliated voters in Kansas than there are Democrats. So, I mean, it's fascinating. As a first data point, it seems, you know, it's very, very significant. And a lot of times, I think when we have these kind of data points, it's a little hedge your bets. There's there's this and there's this. But like all the factors here were kind of on the side of the anti-abortion group. And just and just for my understanding, mm-hmm. and maybe for our listeners' understanding, when you say about partisan primary, so what that means basically is that if you were an independent, there's nothing for you to vote for besides exactly. this. Yep. So it's not like, oh, I'm already there voting for governor and this and that and the other. So it's not that they... It's not that independents weren't allowed to vote on this, that for them to show up, it had to be only for this because this, this is basically all they had a chance to, to vote on at all. Exactly. I mean, and there are two other um, constitutional amendments coming to a vote in Kansas, but interestingly, they were scheduled with the general. So, you know, it really, it was interesting because after Dobbs came down, one of the first things I was kind of thinking about is, well, is this going to really backfire in the Kansas situation? You know, they tried to put it in this like sleepy August election and all of a sudden the entire country is electrified about abortion. Um, Yeah. And that's what happened. And what I'm really interested in now is seeing whether Republican candidates are going to kind of either temper their abortion stuff or do more of the, you know, I want an abortion ban, but I support, you know, paid family leave and whatever. And like, because this is a pretty stark data point of overwhelming rejection of this kind of draconian uh, abortion ban. And I would say that in Kansas, the anti-abortion group did pretend that Oh, you know, this doesn't mean we want to ban it. This just means we're putting power back to the legislature, blah, blah, blah. But everyone basically knew if this goes down, then we're going to get abortion bans. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing that I heard through this that that was some counter, marginal counter to the fact that Kansas is a super red state that, you know, they they have Democratic governors sometimes, but like, you know. But, you know, the Massachusetts has Republican governors, right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same. It's not, it's not exactly the same. It's, there's some similarities to it. The only thing I saw that put any hedge on that is that 
Kansas is not as evangelical conservative as it is Republican. And that is true. But that only gets you so far, right? The point is, it's not Alabama. It may be as, as, as sort of red as Alabama in certain ways, but it's not Alabama. It doesn't, it, it, the, the uh, Republican Party is not dominated by, uh, you know, conservative evangelicals in the way it is in some other states. But for all that, it's a really Republican state. And that tells the story. With its own very rich history of anti-abortion violence, you know, somewhere of mercy, George Tiller. So anyway, it's, I think the way that we've been framing this leading up to it is like, if the amendment passes, it's less useful of a data point just because the the deck is so stacked in favor of it. So the fact that it went down just seems super significant to me. And, you know, it's always it's always hard to say, you know, will this enthusiasm kind of last and blah, blah, blah. But I think as of now, the thinking that this is a really important and salient issue to people and that this is the first time we're going to see what it looks like when the Republican, you know, kind of quote unquote elite, like the lawmakers are just by and large so much more extreme on this issue than the bulk of their constituents. We're kind of just seeing that play out. And what happens when the lawmakers are really just kind of catering to the desire of a small but very vocal minority of their party. It's an interesting thing too, because we've seen there, there's sort of there's there's two things happening at once. Uh, well, a lot of things, but at least on this front, there's two things happening at once. On the one hand, you've got a lot of Republicans saying, well, we don't want abortions, but obviously, if 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 the mother's if her health is at risk, you know, of course she can have an abortion. Or or if if you know if there's incest or if there's rape, I mean, of course. I mean, we're not we're not crazy here, you know. <laughs> That's that sort of thing. Um, and it's funny. You actually had I believe I I I'm just kind of uh, remembering this offhand. I believe the author of the Texas legislation actually gave an interview where like, oh, I guess there people are misunderstanding my law. Certainly didn't, you know, mean anything about the health of the mother. So on the one hand, you've got a lot of politicians saying, oh, 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 you know, you totally misunderstood. That's that's we never intended anything like that. At the same time, you have more and more cases where, you know, these kind of horror stories of of women almost, you know, almost dying because they're not able to get uh, you know, an abortion in the context, you know, one of these things where you have a, a partial miscarriage or uh, a severe hemorrhaging or all these kind of things, these things happening, you've got this, uh, I apologize, I don't remember which stated, I think it's Nebraska, where you've got these like local police like searching this, this teenage girl's like yeah. Facebook account to like, prove that she was trying to abort, you know, uh, 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 terminate a pregnancy. You've got these two things happening at once. You've got a lot of uh, people on the ballot saying, oh, no, 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 there's been a terrible misunderstanding. But in on the ground, you have a lot of people doing with th- this these new powers what people feared and what they always are, you know, what you suspected they were going to do. And both both things are happening at once. And it's interesting to me because it used to always be the case that the abortion restrictionists were, you can say, cynical, strategic, that it didn't make a lot of sense to bring charges against women seeking abortions. That's just bad optics. It was they, Their preference was to portray them as victims. They're just another victim. They're they're a victim of the abortionists who, you know, kind of cajoled them into getting an abortion or whatever. 
but they've moved off that. They're going after a lot of women uh, who, who are, you know, trying to get abortions, getting abortions, whatever. And that is really, um, it's a measure of their perception of their own invulnerability. Like, who cares about the optics? We already won. Right. So who cares? And that's, yeah, that's why I'm so interested in kind of any repositioning that happens post-Kansas. Like there was a debate between the Republican candidates for governor in Wisconsin for who will take on Tony Evers. And it was interesting because it happened after Kansas and they all of a sudden are like, Oh, the, the NBC write-up of this was so painfully credulous, but it says, you know, Republicans are embracing paid family leave now, I, which, by the way, you know, the lieutenant governor who just lost last night, but she said, well, that's something I would look at. So I, I'm calling that embrace is a little aggressive. But anyway, this it is kind of interesting if we see any softening of those positions in light of this. And it goes to what you're saying, right? It's like you pass these ridiculously draconian bans, which even, you know, rape incest uh, exceptions have started getting written out of them as well. And then predictably, you get this flood of stories, a lot of them, you know, coming from about very, very young women, in some case, girls. And <laughs> shocker, not a great look, not something people like reading about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also that, and this is something that I think we long predicted, but we are seeing it in practice, which is that, you know, often in many cases, these laws do have a you know, life of the mother, health of the mother exception. But what we're seeing in practice is that depending on how that is written, depending on how it is enforced, that can that can count for very little. Because, you know, this comes down to it 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 comes down to a doctor or a hospital who needs to make a decision about how is the local district attorney going to look at this? Like, is she likely enough to die? that I feel comfortable doing this, I'm not going to get indicted. And, you know, that that's kind of, that tells you the story. Like, is she 100% going to die or only 50-50? Well, hey, you know, I mean, th those, even, even the nominal exceptions don't count for much. And we're seeing that in practice because, you know, you, you kind of, in theory, you want the doctor to say, hey, I'm not going to torture this woman. I'm going to do the right thing. And yes, that's that's great. But in practice, the doctor also has a life. You know, th they don't want to get they don't want to get indicted for whatever. You know, in some cases, it's you know it's the equivalent of like second degree murder, whatever it is, and and being you know. So it 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 makes it makes in most cases it makes the nominal exception for the life of the mother not really count for too much in practice, because again, there's there's. Um, most things that we consider dire emergencies, it's not like 80% chance you're going to die. You know, 25% chance you're going to die is a really big deal if it's you. I mean, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing all this play out. Yeah. So big news out of Kansas. It'll be interesting to watch um, the governor's race there. Laura Kelly is up this year and, you know, is obviously kind of the Democratic backstop to what the legislature does, even though the legislature does have veto proof um, majority. So we'll kind of see how that plays in as well. But so yeah, how does, big... walk us through though in, in, okay. So, so the structure of how this came down in Kansas is a couple years ago, or I guess in 2019, Kansas Supreme Court basically said there's a right to an abortion in the Kansas constitution. And this, 
referendum was basically to overrule that, to say, no, right. there's not, and give yep. the legislature free grant. What is, from the people you have spoken to, where does the success of this referendum leave things? Are, is the legislature basically blocked from doing mm-hmm. this in practice for the foreseeable yep. future? Okay. And so it's not, I mean, Kansas okay, does have some restrictions. I mean, things like telemedicine issues, like minors have to get parental consent, but with kind of the big draconian stuff, that Supreme Court ruling will still protect it. And like, as of now, you can get an abortion in Kansas up to 22 weeks. So, so as, as for the, for the kind of pre Dobbs status quo, it had relatively extensive abortion rights relative to other states. And, and so from what you're saying that that's kind of that's that should be locked in for the foreseeable future now. Right. Until they, you know, inevitably try this again, which. You right. Know, I mean, know. if you have another <laughs> referendum, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying it's not it's not something I think many people remember uh, the referendum in Florida Ugh, yeah. cycle or two ago where voters ruled basically. I can't remember the specific the exact specifics of it, but if you have a felony record you can vote again. And and the legislature basically said no. And they came they they implemented it in such a way that made it that overruled it. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. No, I because you have that ruling as the backstop, right? So it's not just kind That's of like the default, out of nowhere. basically. Exactly. Right. Yep. Right. Right, right, right. So yeah, big huge news out of Kansas. Uh let's do the other kind of you know big shockingly good thing that happened and then we'll uh go on to the raid. But the fact that the Senate passed this bill, I still just can't quite wrap my mind around because, and I know it's it's so like kind of default to be like, well, it's, there's all this stuff that's wrong with it, or there's all this stuff that it doesn't have, which is obviously true. But it was weeks ago that we came on this pod and we're like, well, Joe Manchin did it again. And now there's going to be absolutely nothing for them to run on in the midterms. And every do- Democrat is demoralized. And you know, blah, 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 everything is bleak. And then weeks later, now we have this package that one report I was reading said uh, would do the same work on reducing emissions up to 90% of what the original BBB would do. So like the climate stuff is basically untouched from its first iteration, which is shocking given that this was a Schumer mansion joint. (laughs) Yeah, no. And, and, and so here's the thing. And I, I, you know, there's been, there have been so many other news events that have happened over the last 14 days that I'm not sure kind of where this was left, but the, to remind everybody no one, certainly Kate and I, didn't think there was going to be any bill regardless. But Republicans were saying, we're not going to do the semiconductors bill if you guys try to bring back, build back better. So, and then at some point, Manchin kind of out of the blue said, oh, that deal I just agreed to? No, because I just found out there's inflation. So sorry. And everybody freaked. Everybody was like, oh my God, you know, Schumer thought, you know, what was Schumer thinking? All this, all this kind of stuff. Um, and uh, so they passed that semiconductors bill. This is the sort of the China global competition chips, all this kind of stuff. They passed the bill, and like twenty minutes later, Schumer, uh, Schumer and Manchin come out like, "Hey, we've got a deal after all." So, and and the Republicans went nuts when 
absolutely nuts that they'd been betrayed and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, these guys clearly pulled a fast one on them, but like, you know, it's like, oh, you were blackmailing us and we figured out how to get unblackmailed. Oh, bad us. But what I still have not seen, and maybe there's been reporting on this that I missed just because so many other things have been going on, but given the timing, it really seems to me possible that that whole uh, mansion pulling the plug was a ruse. I mean, clearly they were in on it together to kind of keep it, keep the deal under ice, you know, until that semiconductor's bill passed. There's no question about that. Absolutely no question. But like when he pulled the plug, that was only a couple weeks late, uh, before, I think, or maybe three. Mm-hmm. It was, so I really wonder if that whole thing was just a, uh, a fake out. Hilarious I mean, if it is. The thing, it was so under wraps to the point that like <laughs> Tina Smith is a, a, the senator from Minnesota who is kind of one of the most climate focused members. And her her tweet when this deal came out was started with holy shit, stunned, but in a good way. Like this was just nobody knew the the details or that this deal was like still living, you know, and I mean, not only did Republicans kind of throw a huge fuss about how dare Democrats govern when they have a majority, but they sabotaged a totally separate bill that was, you know, supposed to be a remedy for veterans who were sickened from toxic burn pits, um, you know, in, in Afghanistan and while fighting abroad. They just like out of sheer spite killed that bill. And there was this clip circulating of like a a huddle of them kind of congratulating each other on the floor of the Senate for doing this. And you could see Ted Cruz like offering out a fist bump and stuff. And then Jon Stewart, you know, the comedian went bananas because this has been his big issue. And then Republicans were like, oh, no, 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 we love veterans. This was an accounting issue. And all of a sudden, you know, that bill is is back and has been passed and is going to be signed today, I think. But just a total like catching Mitch and the boys totally just wrong footed. Democrats were shocked. And I think it it honestly kind of even added to the emotional resonance of the moment, because so many of these Democrats who actually, you know, were really, really committed to build back better in all of its forms and who have been kind of dragged along like the rest of us for these months, were just faced with the new reality of all of a sudden we're passing the most transformative climate bill this country has ever seen out of the ashes of Manchin's latest tantrum. You know, a a big thing that was circulating was Brian Schatz left the Senate floor and was, you know, brushing tears out of his eyes while he was talking to reporters about how, you know, he can now look his kids in the eyes and say they're actually doing something meaningful on climate. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and it also shows the kind of like when the key people are agreed, you do things, you can do things really fast. Mm-hmm. There's not that much to figure out. Um, right. And, and there, I mean, we know this, but it's, 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 it's worth noting just at some level that clearly uh, in that negotiation, Manchin and Schumer, Schumer got Manchin to let's do this. Like, let's do this. Not kind of like, oh, you know, maybe depending on how whether my coffee has gone up five cents when I go to this, you know, when I go to the Starbucks or something like that. But like, let's do it. And we had, you know, cinema try to get in there. And I guess she did um, mm-hmm. 
strip out the carried interest uh, uh, loophole. I mean, that's bad on the on the merits because that's just terrible policy. There's no justification for that. But in the context of the bill, it didn't matter that much. It didn't really it didn't really impact the climate stuff. They were able to. Uh, uh, you know, replace the revenue and actually add a little to the revenue. I think they did a surtax on stock buybacks or, you know, one of these kind of technical things. Um, and, but it's, but it's just interesting when you, it's, it's kind of what Democrats, it's kind of where Democrats were trying to get mansion on so many other things and mm-hmm. in, at so many other steps in the process to get him to the point where he's not just agreed, but where he's invested. And you could see that he was, he was invested here. He kind of, you know, kind of uh, hit, uh, I don't want to say hit on cinema, you know, kind of uh, uh, went after her a bit, kind of like, hey, what's the problem? Let's do this. And, um, you know, give him credit. It's done. Yeah. I think another piece of this that when I was kind of talking to climate environmentally types, one of the reasons why they're so excited about this bill, even though this bill, you know, on its own is not enough to avert catastrophe. But basically, it's all carrots, right? It's it's no carbon tax. The methane fee thing is like kind of small and kind of soft. It's you needed mansion on board. You're not going to be able to punish fossil fuel in this bill. But what it basically does is just drives all of the action towards strengthening a new green industrial world, you know, all the incentives, all the tax breaks, they go in that direction. And we've already seen, you know, renewables in a lot of places are already a lot cheaper than fossil fuel. So all this is going to do is kind of nudge that direction even harder. And then we're just going to get to a place where the fossil fuel kind of lobby special uh, special interest industry is just not that strong because it is not the moneymaker that green energies are going to be. So I think people were really excited about this too, because when that's the world, the political landscape is totally different, right? Because all of a sudden we're introducing the idea of a really strong green energy lobby. And that's the special interest that, you know, has the most power in these negotiations. You know, one guy said to me, like, right now is the moment where I think fossil fuels are going to have the most power over these negotiations that they ever do. So that just kind of sets the stage for making it easier to pass more major climate legislation in the future, um, which is just kind of another reason to celebrate this and to continue to be shocked that Manchin, who personally profits from fossil fuel industries, you know, let it happen. Yeah, I mean, w- the big thing to me is is and the to get into the innards and just for for our listeners to get into the innards of this bill, it does do things like you know streamline permitting for for various mm-hmm. fossil fuel things. Um, so so there were things that the fossil fuel people wanted and got, but. And again, this is very. This is just a kind of a different way of saying the same thing that 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 Kate did. The people who I know who know climate the best basically made the argument. You know, this puts the green energy economy on an even footing, and that's the future. That's where the direction is. That's where the innovation is. So yes, it streamlines some stuff there. But this other thing is so much more important, and that doesn't really affect that. I mean, I think that the 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 big thing that is important to see is that everybody knows that energy is going towards renewables and green and away from fossil fuels. 
No one even contests that point anymore. The question is, is it going to happen at all fast enough to be in time? And what you have is you have tremendous innovation in the renewable sector, but you've got all you've got all the regulatory structure still advantaging fossil fuels. And so what you have here is is basically putting the fossil fuels on an even footing and even greasing the skids for renewables. So sure, it's it's you know, it's it's streamlining their permits and stuff like that, but at this point the economics will get you there on its own. The question is is it going to be fast enough? And without doing this, it will not be fast enough. And and you know, for me, it's funny there's, you know, a it is absolutely the case that this not only does not solve the problem, it is only a beginning of what you need to maybe solve the problem. The problem, I mean, I don't want to say it's unsolvable because there's, uh, you know, things can always be worse and marginally better, but you know what I mean. And the key to me is I look at people like, you know, David Roberts, Bill McKibben, and all, all the people who dedicate their lives to this issue who are really smart and know the details. And to a person, at least from what I have seen, all of these people are like, wow, good bill. Let's mm-hmm. do this. Mm-hmm. Not being like panacea about it, but like, does this move us in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. And so for anybody who's kind of, you know, look, there's, there's, if you are, if your issue is climate and you say, what would you do if you could write the bill? Of course, it's not this. But we're living in the real world in which a month ago, it seemed like literally nothing was going to happen. And in the context of US politics, if nothing happened this year, that really seems like that would mean like, all right, maybe we'll try again in a decade. Right. Which obviously is, is, is catastrophe. So it's a Mm -hmm. huge, it's a huge deal. Yeah, it's huge. And this bill does some even kind of remedy some of the old issues. Like we were in this boom and bust cycle where these tax credits for renewables would run for like two years and then run out. So it'd be two years of kind of development and innovation and then the money dries up. And these extend them, you know, in some cases for a decade. And there have been some kind of initial analyses of the climate stuff in this bill. And, you know, one found that for every one ton of emissions that come from the fossil fuel kind of compromises for mansion in this bill, there are 24 billion that are, you know, no longer emitted because of the green uh, provisions. And then, you know, pretty much all of them, I, I kind of went through three different of these uh, early reports, and they all basically pinned it around this bill gets us to 40% less carbon emissions from 2005 levels by 2030. And Biden's initial BBB goal was to have it. So that, you know, so we have the 40% from this bill, and then you kind of combine that with whatever Biden can do through executive action, whatever states and local and private actors do, that puts that goal back within reach, which along with just kind of being our own salvation, I mean, that puts us in a position where we can actually kind of talk about climate and energy stuff on a world stage without just looking ridiculous because we're not doing anything about it. I mean, that is part of our Paris Agreement deal. And it's just a completely different position than we were in a few weeks ago. And like you say, there is not going to be kind of guaranteed democratic unified control at any point in the future. And Republicans clearly are not going to do anything about climate, which just means this was the last 
opportunity for a while. And the fact that we got this bill like co kind of signed off on by Manchin from it is just extraordinary. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the other interesting thing to me is that in, in some ways this sort of, it makes sense that this, I mean, I wouldn't have thought so, but it makes sense that this is the compromise that Manchin would want because like, is he like committed to the ideology of fossil fuels? No, he's just in the coal business and he, and he knows those people. And like, you want to make sure, you know, kind of like, what happens in a decade, whatever, but like, I have this one mine I'm trying to open and I'm, and, and, you know, the energy department's giving me hassles. Can you help? You know, that's (laughs) his, that's his thing. It's very transactional. It's very money oriented. Um, and that's not great, but that pales in comparison to the, to the other side of the ledger. One other thing I want to come back to and, and, um, after that blow up, which was, you know, I guess a month ago, whenever that was, when, when Manchin said, hey, it turns out there's inflation, the, the deal's off. And, and, and then there was, you know, at first, the idea was, okay, Biden's going to do all this stuff because, you know, fuck Joe Manchin, we've had enough, and he's going to do executive actions. And then there was kind of like, okay, wait, maybe, maybe they're going to try this one more time. And I remember a lot of people saying, and at first I was wondering, like, are you kidding? Mm-hmm. Like, are you kidding? Are you kidding with this? You're going to do that again. And at a at a at a later point, I I said kind of what Schumer did. Um, when you're in that position and you know you've been had twenty times, but you also know there's no other way. And if you're looking at kind of like you know everybody's saying, oh, you're Lucy in the football. Oh, are you kidding? You're pathetic. But if you're in that position and you're saying, okay, there's no way this will happen without Joe Manchin. So am I just going to say, fuck it? And no, I'm not going to talk to you. Or am I going to probably look like an idiot, but there's a chance. There's like a 1% chance. Of course you have to do it. Mm -hmm. Because he has the marbles. It's not going to happen without him. And so you just have to put up with his bullshit to on on just the faintest chance and they did it and again it, it may actually be that that last blow up was a ruse I, I, again you look at the you look at the different things and at some level it kind of has to be because it all happened so quickly they didn't just come up with the, the you know kind of come up with the agreement again somehow but it it's it is a it's a lesson there that Sometimes you have to just keep at it, not only when it seems like there's not much chance, but when it's kind of humiliating, if there's no other option. And Mm -hmm. like, look, give credit to Chuck Schumer here. He got it done. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Credit to Chuck Schumer, but lest anyone walk away thinking that we are saying positive things about Joe Manchin, I would like to add that based on how this bill ended up, you know, Manchin, who... Every mainstream outlet always writes like he's from a heavy coal state, which is like there are not even that many coal miners left in West Virginia. It's much more important to say that he profits off the industry himself, but whatever, different fight. Joe Manchin ended up with this bill basically retaining all the climate stuff from the original. What has dropped out because of him were all the social spending, all the social programs. He is the exception of some of the healthcare, Obamacare subsidy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But he is from one of, if not the poorest state in the country. And that is the stuff he axed. You know, that's the stuff that he was like, well, 
uh, this should be means tested and I want to make sure people don't use their child tax credit on drugs. And I just I just would like to just to add that Joe Manchin's disdain for poor people here ended up trumping his embrace of the fossil fuel industry. And while I'm really thrilled about the climate stuff, we should not forget the losses that he incurred. <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it you know, I... <sighs> I, I go back and forth because on one, at one level, you kind of say, could we have just gotten here in the, in the summer of 2021? If this is where it was going to be, like, could you have just like cut to the fucking chase and said, look, this is all I'm going to do. Let's do it. Move on. I, I go back and forth. On the one hand, why did we spend this year going back and forth? On the other hand, there was not a lot of appetite among Democrats for this size of bill a year ago. So maybe at some, you know, in some, um, maybe in some ways it had to play out this way because at this point, I mean, it, it, it tells the tale that basically all the Democrats, not just the sort of progressive Democrats, squad Democrats, everybody, it was sort of like, Hey, whatever you can do, let's do it. Like we're, you know, we, mm-hmm. we're, 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 we're looking, we're looking into the abyss here. And I completely agree with what you're saying about the uh, social safety net part of it. To me, that sucks, but we can do social democracy in a decade. Fully agree. I, I'm not saying it, it's not, not, it's not nothing. It's, it's, we need it now, but like the climate stuff is not something we can do in a decade. It yep. literally has to be now. And so while this is not the bill that I think anybody wanted uh, a year ago, the absolutely existential stuff, as you say, shockingly, came through more or less unscathed, which is just bizarre. But like, you know, here we are. Bizarre. And I wonder if just the one kind of upside of Manchin, like not being all that bright or all that interested in policy details, you know, you slap the name Inflation Reduction Act on it and all of a sudden, guess who's on board? Yeah, I, you know, th- that that part of it, I, I, that part of it remains ins- fairly inscrutable to me because, yes, He's sort of a jughead and he's not a policy guy, but he's not that dumb. <laughs> right? I mean, he's not that dumb. And and so and yes, this was his thing. We're going to call it the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and everybody on the Democratic side is like, "Okay, whatever, dude. Great. Awesome." <laughs> awesome. And obviously, uh Republicans all, uh, you know, all upset and everything. There's something that happened here where he said, "Okay, I'm on board. Let's do it. And I don't, I still don't get. Me neither. What piece of the equation, what event happened that got you here? And like, okay, Josh doesn't need to know. (laughs) All I really care about is that it happened. But I'm still curious, (laughs) right? Because there's not, it's not, there's not an obvious explanation to me. Yep. Yeah, me neither. Okay, so we shall wrap it up with, uh, the picture in our heads of FBI windbreakers at the gates of Mar-a-Lago. Trump was not there. He was in New York. Um, We've had reporting from the Wall Street Journal that they ended up taking out, I think, 10 boxes of materials. And uh, Trump's personal lawyer, I guess, also kind of confirmed that it was about 
classified information in, in one of her interviews with one of those like scary OAN kind of deals. Right. And that is like still kind of shockingly basically all we know. Well, one, you know, one little detail, and I can't remember which news story I read this in, but I, but I, I read this this morning, that they, there were actually were no windbreakers. That as part of them keeping it as low key as possible, mm-hmm. they went in in business suits. And again, they don't have to wear those windbreakers. It's just part of that's just part of the drama about, you know, <laughs> yeah. open the fucking door. We're the FBI, that whole kind of thing. But yeah, we don't, we don't know. And I think the the basic thing that everyone agrees on is that there's some piece of this puzzle that we have not seen yet because, you know, it's uh, my my wife and my, my sister who was visiting, they were working on a puzzle, actually a Keith Haring puzzle. Never do a Keith Haring puzzle because you've got the <laughs> same characters hard. being duplicated, yeah. out, you know, on the entire thing. In any case, a little digression there. <laughs> um, in any case, I'm thinking of puzzles, but it's one of these things where you put everything together and there's something missing. Well, that is what, that's what you have here. There's something missing because on its face, this does not fit. This does not add up that this is just a kind of, oh, you know, turns out this one box, you still owe us. So we're going to send the FBI down there and take it. That doesn't quite add up. And it, it's, I, I keep reading, I keep reading the new news stories from the sort of the big national outlets, you know, the journal, the post, the times, uh, to a slightly lesser extent, the, you know, the national uh, news networks. They keep saying the same vague things over and over again. The government is being very, very tight here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, kind of as you'd expect. But it leaves us sort of in the dark about, about, what's, about what's up. I mean, I wonder how soon we will, how soon we'll know more. I mean, one, one, let me mention one thing. One thing that hasn't gotten enough attention yet is that the government's not going to release the warrant search warrant. Trump can release a search warrant. He can do whatever he wants. The, the, the target can always talk, you know, do anything. Same way that like, you know, uh, well, other, other analogies. I'm curious whether, how that is going to play out. I think we know why they don't want to release it because what's in there is not good. If it were good, they'd release it and they're not. And I'm, I'm curious whether we're going to see, I don't know, more pressure for them to, you know, who knows? It'd be it'd be good to know a little more about what's going on. Yeah, I do. You think there's a chance that we just won't ever know? I mean, I, I just it seems to me. I agree with you that it it would seem odd if all of this was just because he like owes more stuff that he hasn't handed in. And not that that's not a big deal that, you know, if you don't enforce these laws, they're not really laws at all. Right. And we, this is unprecedented, but it's also unprecedented to kind of have a president leave with like documents stuffed in all his pockets. So, but it seems to me like after everything, there's just, there's no way that Trump's going to go down on some kind of like mishandling of classified information thing. Is there, it just seems so like small bore compared to the the extent of everything he's done. I think it is pretty, well, it's pretty small bore if you see this in, if you see this as, hey, those documents, I thought, I think they're mine. You think they're yours. We disagree. And now I'm indicted. Mm-hmm. That's, I really think that is highly unlikely just because 
you know, every, everything is so tax is, is so draining with Trump because it gets complicated if you violate all the laws. <laughs> um, having said that, that's just not that that's not where you're going to kind of draw. I don't, I don't think that's where you're going to draw the line. And I, and I especially don't think it's where you're going to, you know, resort to sort of search warrants and stuff and stuff like that. That just doesn't add up to me. I guess it is possible if, um, I mean, I saw a, a piece by David Korn, who was always cogent and extremely knowledgeable, basically saying that uh, Ray and uh, Garland have really passed the Rubicon here because now they need to indict Trump to justify this action. That if they don't, if they kind of said, eh, we don't really have anything, that they're going to, you know, look bad. I don't, that doesn't really add up to me. Uh, for one thing, because I think Garland and Ray, I have less of a sort of an intuitive sense of Ray. I think he's a really cautious guy. I don't think he finds himself backed into indicting someone to justify something. Because if you're backed into an indictment, you're probably going to lose that, you know, probably going to lose that case or you can. I think the, you know, I, I think the cause and effect there is backward. I think this wasn't, for, for some reason, this was not a close call and they felt they needed to do it. Uh, and that's, you know, maybe that'll be wrong, but I doubt it. And, you know, so won't, won't we know? I, I guess it's possible that, that, you know, just there's no charges and and so there's no venue in which you're ever going to find out but i doubt it i really i really doubt it there's too um there's too much pressure and desire from too i mean look the country is deeply united about wanting to know what happened here <laughs> the trumpers and the anti-trumpers agree what's going on that united pressure is too great to withstand. So I think we are going to find out what's up here. And some people will like it and some people won't. Yeah. The other piece we should discuss before we wrap up is there was a flood of Republican reaction to this kind of based on the same lack of information that everyone has, which was, you know, just the newest iteration of this is a witch hunt. Biden's politicized DOJ, you know, unprecedented banana republic. And then the most, you know, delicious offshoot of this coming from, you know, Boebert and Green and Gosar's defund the FBI, which it's, it's just nice to see the conversation come full circle like this. But it is, you know, it's not even a profound point, but it's just kind of amusing to watch how the whole like law and order, you know, police can do whatever they want. And we respect them and we have their back and back the blue. Like that only matters for the kind of class of people that they consider, you know, perma criminals, basically, which is, you know, especially black people, uh, protesters of any kind of anti-Trump sort. But then <laughs> that completely goes out of the window when you're talking about Trump or kind of acting on Trump's whims, you know, that's how you get the situation where then, you know, they're all the, the January 6th mob is a uh, peaceful touristers, you know, as they're kind of like beating up the police and how, you know, this is a witch hunt, you, you know, even though every other day they're like Hunter Biden should be sent to Guantanamo Bay for like whatever the cause of the day is. It's just, you know, it's not like Republican hypocrisy is a, an interesting untapped vein at this point, but it is just really on very vivid display in this case. Yeah, I mean, it. it 
one of the things, uh, you know, there is a, a stream of, I would call it uh, left dissident thinking, which holds that the reason the police exist is not to preserve public safety and enforce this kind of concept of the law that we have. It's to keep the people not in power down, the black and brown people, the people who show up at protests, people who commit petty crimes. It's to, it's to keep them in line and to, and, to, and to bruise them up. And there's always been some truth to that. That's part of the equation. It's certainly not the equation as I think of things, because I think the, the rule of law and the enforcement of public and, and the enforcement of the law, the equal protection and equal enforcement of the law is critical to the kind of society we function. I, you know these different ways of looking things. One of the things about the world of Trumpism is it creates a universe in which that first view is, is, isn't too far off the mark. That there's no rule of law. There's our street toughs called the police who kick the ass of everybody who gets out of line. So you have this kind of, uh, you have this dynamic where the cartoonish malevolence of Trumpism in many ways validates uh, very wholesale left theories of how society works. Right, the two things, the two things kind of, uh, kind of go together. But as you can see, it kind of, you know, the, the, j just the idea of, hey, you shouldn't break the law, and if you do, these things can happen. That's that's just, you know, and and again, they, 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 the Trump mindset is very outside the worldview of of those of us who are really hung up on this idea of the rule of law, which does not, which certainly does not always play out as it is play out in the real world as kind of as intended. But that idea of the rule of law is not that like, you know, the cops can kick your ass. It's that we've got this set of rules and it's going to apply to everybody. And it's not going to apply twice to some people and none to some people. And all you know, all, we know all this kind of stuff, and you can just see how far that is from again the sort of the Trump mindset. Because if it's coming after Trump, it can't be law, right? It's as simple as that. And I do love just the implication and what's been kind of their chorus, which is, you know, if they can do this to Trump, imagine what they can do to you. Because it's just like, it's so embedded in there, the belief that a person like Trump, you know, a, a white, wealthy, powerful man should be exempted from the law. And if he's not, imagine what's going to happen to the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it is pretty scary, the idea the FBI comes with a warrant to your house. That's, that's one reason, hopefully not the only reason, but it's why most of us try not to commit many crimes. Because that is scary. It's not not scary. It is scary. Um, you, know, it's, you know, it's not one of these things like, oh, you don't have anything to worry about if you, if you, don't, if you haven't done anything wrong. But again, like, you know, <laughs> things get scary for people when they, do, when they, when they break uh, laws. And sometimes the government is out of control. And that's why mm -hmm. you want courts and the whole rule of law thing. You know, I know. It's, just, it's funny, the whole like kind of trigger turn on the FBI in particular, because I think you could make the argument the FBI has been 
pretty good to Trump in its biggest high profile actions of late. You know, how quickly we forget the Comey announcement of the whole Hillary email stuff and the, oh, we're not investigating Trump for Russia. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty all, loyal. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's always the, the, the ridiculousness of this that to the extent that the organization has any political, ideo- ideological, cultural politics to it, it's a it's a pretty conservative organization. Yeah. I mean, no kidding, right? I mean, it's it's cops, right? It, of course, it's of course it's it's right leaning. Uh, that's not the same as saying that they're you know uh, defending Republican presidents, although sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but just the the idea that it is kind of like you know the, that that you know FBI shows up at your house and they won't stop talking about pronouns. Right. I mean, that's not that's not how it works. That makes no sense. And everybody who lives in the real world knows that's 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 nonsense. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let me remind you, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25 percent off at Grady's Cold Brew dot com with promo code TPM. That's Grady's Cold Brew dot com with promo code TPM. And we will talk to you next week. Yep. See you next week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen.